questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions. I intend taking both constituency and general supplementaries after question two. Members wishing to ask such supplementaries should press the requests to speak buttons during question two. And I'll keep a note of members who press and may take further supplementaries from members if we have any time in hand after question six. And members wishing to ask a supplementary question to questions three to six, please press during the relevant question. And I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. The SNP's vaccination passport scheme comes into effect in just a few hours' time. And while the judgment has been delivered, businesses were still in court trying to halt the scheme as late as this morning. Guidance is still being published. The app was to be launched today. So far, we've got the app to check vaccine passports, but we don't have the app for vaccine passports. Everything about this has been left to the last minute. This isn't the way to run any scheme, let alone one that will affect people right across Scotland. The First Minister and I disagree strongly about this policy. My party want it scrapped, but surely even she must accept that the scheme is not ready and needs to be delayed. First Minister. Uh, no, I, I don't uh, agree with that. Douglas Ross, uh, perhaps understandably from his perspective, wants to simply gloss over uh, the uh, decision of the Court of Session uh, this morning, rejecting the application for interim interdict. So therefore, let me uh, summarise and paraphrase uh, the reasons that were given for that rejection, uh, that the scheme had been consulted upon, uh, that there had been the opportunity to take part in that consultation. The scheme introduced was not disproportionate, irrational or unreasonable. Um, it was reasonable to bring in the phased approach. There was no discrimination. Um, and in summary, the scheme was attempting to address legitimate concerns in a reasonable and balanced way. Uh, all along, presiding officer, I've been very candid and clear. None of us uh, want to be in this position. None of us want to be having to take any of the steps we've had to take over 18 months now to seek to contain a virus, keep people safe and try to limit the health and other damage that this virus does. But we are still in this virus. There are still around 1,000 people in our hospitals because of it uh, or with it or because of it. And of course, we face what may be the most difficult winter any of us can imagine. This is a targeted and proportionate way to try to reduce the harm that the virus will do over the winter months while keep our economy fully open, fully functioning and fully trading. Um, and the judgment from the court this morning, uh, I think, recognises both those reasons and the way in which the government has gone about this. We will continue to engage with business, uh, not just in the run-up uh, to the enforcement of this coming into uh, place on the 18th of October after the legal obligation comes into force tomorrow, uh, but we will do that afterwards as well to make sure that we are listening, understanding, but that all of us are working collectively to try to keep the country as safe as possible as we go through these winter months. Douglas Ross. The First Minister claims she's been candid and clear. If only her vaccine passport scheme was candid yeah. and clear. And she says I glossed over the legal challenge. I mentioned it right at the top of yeah. my question. But surely, surely it shows how badly the government have worked with businesses that they had to take this last minute legal challenge and they were still in court with her government this morning. Sectors are desperately trying to stop it from going ahead because they're so worried about the impact it will have on their businesses and Scottish jobs. This scheme starts at 5am tomorrow morning. But by tomorrow night, we could be in the ridiculous situation 
where hundreds of people will be at venues where they need a vaccine passport to get in. But if the music is turned off, the exact same people suddenly don't need a vaccine passport. At the football this weekend, thousands of people will need to go through vaccine passport checks in a very short space of time without any public campaign to inform them of the procedures they will have to go through. Doesn't the First Minister realise that to everyone in the real world, this looks like a complete farce? First Minister. Uh, again, no, I don't. I think the vast majority of people across Scotland, while uh, very few, if any, uh, like the measures we're having to take to control this virus, understand the reasons for these measures. And actually, would prefer a situation where people are being asked to show proof of vaccination uh, than a situation where venues like nightclubs or large-scale events have to stop or close again. Uh, that's the balance we're seeking to strike. And in terms of uh, the legal challenge, uh, any organisation in a democracy has a right to challenge decisions of government right up until uh, those decisions come into force and indeed afterwards. Uh, interestingly, I think the right to judicial review is a right that the Tories south of the border are seeking to take away uh, completely, if I understand it, or at least limit it uh, considerably. Uh, but the judgment uh, of uh, Lord Burns this morning is very clear and very emphatic on the point about the fact that some venues and some circumstances are covered and not others. Again, I'm paraphrasing and summarising, uh, but the reasons uh, recognised that the it was widely known that the combination of alcohol, dancing, late nights uh, inside created a high-risk environment for the transmission of COVID uh, that doesn't occur uh, to the same extent in other venues. Uh, so there's no perfection uh, when you are dealing with an infectious virus. All of the steps and measures we have to take are imperfect um, and of course they are far from ideal. But we can't simply wish COVID away. We've got to take the steps to get uh, cases back under control. And as I said the other day, and I think it is worth repeating, um, Douglas Ross over recent months uh, has opposed almost every step we've tried to take from face coverings through to uh, COVID certification. If I'd listened to Douglas Ross, then we probably wouldn't be in the position we're in now, thankfully, of having cases on a downward path. So perhaps it's Douglas Ross that needs to reflect a bit more uh, on some of the arguments he makes in this chamber. Douglas Ross. If the First Minister listened to those of us on these benches, she wouldn't be introducing a scheme from 5am tomorrow that sees hundreds of people get their vaccine passport checked as they walk into a venue, but the music gets unplugged and suddenly, miraculously, they don't need a vaccine passport at all. Yeah, and if she had listened to these benches, she wouldn't be introducing a scheme from 5am tomorrow, which can't be enforced for more than a fortnight yeah. uh, further on. Businesses have never had a tougher time than right now, but they're getting guidance on vaccine passports at the very last minute. And the evidence case for them, if it can be called that because there's barely any evidence for this policy, appeared before a Scottish Parliament committee for the first time this morning. There are so many flaws littered throughout this scheme and proper consideration hasn't taken place. Let's look at just one key part of this legislation. Who have the Scottish Government consulted with over Regulation 16A and what was the outcome of those discussions? 
First Minister. Uh, we've consulted with a range of stakeholders. Uh, I'm more than happy to go into uh, detail or provide. Look, I don't have the regulations in front of me right now. I'm very happy to uh, come back afterwards and go through every uh, particular regulation and who precisely we have consulted on. But let's come back uh, to the heart of the matter here. And, uh, there is one point I uh, agree uh, with Douglas uh, Ross on. If we'd listened to him and the Conservatives, then many of the steps we've taken to try to get COVID uh, cases back under control again, we wouldn't have taken. Uh, but I'm afraid the consequence of that may well have been that COVID cases would still have been rising, because Douglas Ross just a few weeks ago was complaining about the continued legal requirement uh, to wear face coverings um, and has opposed literally almost everything uh, that we have done. Um, so I, I think this is just part of a pattern and probably will lead most people to think uh, that it's a good thing that Douglas Ross is not standing here yes. facing uh, having to take these decisions. Douglas Ross. Um, Douglas um, Ross. I, Thank you, presiding officer. <laughs> My apologies. I, I assumed that the first minister had finished. 16 years. First minister. I was actually going to address the point, uh, presiding officer, about evidence, because evidence is important. And uh, Douglas Ross uh, likes quite legitimately to quote uh, different people uh, before this chamber. So in terms of the, the committee that was scrutinising this uh, just this very morning, uh, let me reflect on the comments of Professor Christopher uh, Dye, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Oxford, uh, where uh, he commends uh, the evidence paper um, and says, uh, and he does say with one or two comments or queries, I broadly agree with its recommendations. I think it's a very good report, actually, and I agree with its basic recommendations, which is that vaccine certification is a useful device and approach to support the vaccination programme in Scotland. Uh, so that takes us back to the heart of this matter. Uh, we have an infectious virus circulating. It has taken far too many lives. It is still doing too much damage. A thousand people are in our hospitals uh, with COVID right now as we speak. It is incumbent on government to take responsible, reasonable and targeted measures to keep the country safe as we go into this potentially very difficult winter. And that's a responsibility I am going to uh, continue to treat and discharge with the utmost seriousness. Douglas Ross. Officer, the First Minister had two bites at the cherry to answer that question, and she couldn't do it. There's only half a dozen regulations to her legislation that comes into effect from 5am tomorrow. If it's somehow unreasonable to know about Regulation 16A, it was discussed in the COVID committee this morning, which her Deputy First Minister appeared in front of. She can turn to him to ask for answers. He doesn't seem to know either. And it just shows the lack of engagement, the lack of consultation, and the lack of understanding from the SM about their own policy. The government seem to be making this up as they go along. Just look at what John Swinney said at the COVID committee this morning. He couldn't even tell the members what will be the criteria to end the COVID passport scheme. He's whispering in the First Minister's ear, so let's hope that she can tell us, because he couldn't at the committee this morning. The SNP government is the only one in Europe to run a scheme like this, relying purely on the vaccination status of people and banning them from venues unless they can produce official paperwork. The only government in Europe forcing these higher costs onto businesses and the only government in Europe forcing such restrictive rules onto the public. Nicola Sturgeon wants independence in Europe. Well, she's got it. She's completely alone in pursuing yes, this shambles exactly. of a scheme. So can I ask, why are countries across Europe wrong? 
thousands of Scottish businesses, the Scottish Beer and Pub Association, the Scottish Hospitality Group, the Nighttime Industries Association, the Federation of Small Businesses, the Scottish Chamber of Commerce, the Scottish Licensed Trade Association and the Scottish Human Rights Commission. Why are they all wrong but Nicola Sturgeon's right? First Minister. It's interesting that in, in the course of uh, that ramble, uh, Douglas Ross appears to have completely changed the basis for his opposition to COVID certification. Uh, up until now, um, I understood, uh, Anna Sauer, I think, changed the basis of his about a week ago, but up until now, I understood that it was because it was far far too difficult uh, for businesses to comply with this. Now it's because uh, we're only requiring uh, proof of vaccine and not proof of a negative test. And I've set out clearly, firstly, why we're not doing that at this point and uh, the fact that we will keep that under review. But the reason we're not doing it right now, uh, principally, is because we're trying to drive up vaccination rates. Uh, We've set out the rationale, uh, we've set out the reasons and we've set out the detail. Uh, a court has looked at this over uh, the past 24 hours and I've already summarised the judgment of the court uh, delivered just this very morning. The committee has scrutinised this again this morning. We have listened to businesses, which is why we have delayed enforcement to allow businesses a grace period to test their arrangements in practice. But I come back to the central point. I I'm left wondering uh, what exactly it is that Douglas Ross does support us doing to keep COVID under control, to protect people's health, to protect our economy and to save lives because the position he is taking right now is simply to oppose everything this government does uh, simply for the sake of opposition. At any time, that is irresponsible. But in the face of a deadly virus, that is particularly irresponsible from the Conservatives. Question, question number two, Anna Sarwar. Presiding officer, we are facing a cost of living crisis. Today, furlough comes to an end, a lifeline for so many. Next week, universal credit will be cut for millions of people across the country. I'm sure on that, the First Minister and I agree that that is a shameful mistake by the Tory government. And tomorrow, the energy cap will rise by £139, meaning that many will face the choice between eating and heating this winter. Even before this cost of living crisis, this was an unacceptable choice facing too many people in our country, particularly our elderly. Can the First Minister tell the Chamber right now how many people in Scotland are living in fuel poverty and how many of them are pensioners? First Minister. Uh, far too many. Uh, with apologies to Anna Sarwar, I don't have the precise uh, figures in front of me right now, but I know uh, that it is too many. Of course, this government is taking action uh, to try to help uh, people on the lowest incomes with the cost of living crisis, because I absolutely agree that is what uh, we are facing. Uh, so, for example, uh, by the end of October, we will make a £130 uh, support payment uh, for every household to receive council tax reduction. Um, uh, that's an investment of up to £65 million. It will benefit over 500,000 households. Of course, we have introduced the child payment, which is also intended to help those living in poverty. I suspect Anna Sarwar's next uh, question uh, is going to be to ask me for us to make additional payments to people uh, living in fuel poverty. And I would say this, I think we can hopefully agree between us that if this government had the wherewithal to do that, we would do that because we all want to help those on the lowest incomes. But we get again to the nub of a matter here. This government uh, and, and any uh, government in the Scottish Parliament is simply unable to continue uh, week after week, month after month, year after 
year, mitigating the impact of reserved policies from a limited and finite devolved budget. It simply is not possible uh, without hitting the devolved responsibilities uh, that we have the responsibility for hard. And that comes back to this matter. If we want this parliament, as I do, to be able to do all of the things that no doubt Anna Sarwar is going to ask me to do, we can't uh, just wish the ends. We have to give this parliament the means to do it. We have to give this parliament the powers and we have to ensure that it is this parliament that holds the resources. Anything short of that from Anna Sarwar, I'm afraid, is just an empty soundbite. And what we face right now is far too serious for that. Anna Sarwar. <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is far too serious and that's why uh, the soundbites are coming from the First Minister. We do have means, and we should use the means we have. We have the power to have the winter fuel payment from this Parliament, but the First Minister has chosen to give that power back to the very Tory government she rightfully uh, criticises. So let's use the power and make a difference. And on the question I asked the First Minister, the answer is 613,000 people uh, living in fuel poverty, and of that, over 200,000 are believed to be pensioners. That is one in four households across our country unable to make ends meet and forced to make heartbreaking choices right now. This week we heard that Scotland had recorded the first death by starvation of an older person in a decade. An older person in our country, one of the richest in the world, starving to death in their home. First Minister, words cannot describe how tragic and awful that is. And words are not going to keep people warm this winter. The Scottish Government can and must take action now. Earlier this week, we called for a £70 increase in winter fuel payments to help the poorest pensioners this winter. And today we learned that the Scottish Government will receive an additional £41 million to support hard-pressed families over the coming months. So now we can go even further. So will the First Minister enhance the winter fuel payment, not just for the poorest pensioners, but also give targeted support to struggling families, for example, where there is a child with a disability, and for those in receipt of a council tax reduction, we have the means. Let's use the means. First Minister. Well, firstly, the, the £41 million that Anna Sarwar is referring to, I assume, is what will flow from the announcement of the UK Government this morning uh, of a £500 million fund UK-wide uh, for uh, low-income families. What I'd say, and I'm surprised to uh, hear Anas Sarwar talk about that positively because this is a, an announcement from a Tory government who is taking, which is taking £6 billion out of the pockets of the lowest income families through the universal credit cut and is expecting praise, which they seem to have just got from Anas Sarwar for putting £500 million back. It is an absolute disgrace and an insult. But every penny of consequentials that we get from that will go to support low-income families, and I give that uh, absolute commitment. And that will be in addition to the support that I've already talked about, uh, a £130 support payment by the end of October that will go to every household who did receive council tax uh, reduction, uh, supporting over 500,000 households across the country. Uh, we're also doubling the carers allowance supplement in December to try to help uh, carers uh, with the cost of living increase and as I already said we've introduced the, the child payment. In fact the Social Security Scotland which I uh, visited in Dundee just yesterday is delivering 11 benefits already. Seven of them don't exist anywhere else. That's how seriously we are taking the obligation to help those most in need. But I come back to the point. Our resources are finite. What Anna Sarwar is asking me to do 
is to, within a devolved budget that is already allocated, is to find money again to mitigate the impact of reserve policies. Wouldn't it make more sense for us to have the powers here in this Parliament with the accompanying resources so that we could take different decisions? So make two open offers to Anna Sarwar. Firstly, back the Scottish Government in that call to devolve all of Social Security to this Parliament and not just some of it. And secondly, if he does want us to make another payment, then by all means, if he wants to come to me and say where in the already allocated Scottish budget uh, we take over and above the £41 million that he's spoken to, which I've already said will be fully allocated, if he wants anything over and above that, then come and tell me where within the Scottish budget he wants me to take that money from. And I'm happy to listen to him if he's prepared to do it. I'm, I'm very conscious of time and I would be grateful if we could have shorter questions and responses. Um, Anna Sarwar. I think the problem is the First Minister wants to shout pre-prepared attack lines rather than actually listen to what I'm saying. Um, I wasn't welcoming the new money as some kind of relief to universal credit. I was actually taking seriously what the First Minister often says is if you've got a proposal, tell us where the money is coming from. And I've told her quite clearly there's £41 million coming there. Let's use it to make a difference. She also gives examples. She also gives examples, which I also welcome, but they were announced before we had a cost of living crisis. And what I say to you, First Minister, is we can shout about what new powers we want. Let's use the powers we have to change people's lives in the here and now. Because this is urgent. People are facing rising costs today. Energy bills will rise tomorrow. People need help now. We can't dither and delay when families need that reassurance. The Scottish Government has the power to do something about it. We know the additional £41 million is on its way. And families need to know that support is on its way too because warm words will be cold comfort for people who risk suffering this winter. So can the First Minister guarantee to the Chamber that the Government will act, that she will back our plan and make sure that £41 million gets into people's pockets before it's too late? First Minister. I, I think people watching this will have heard me say every penny of the £41 million uh, will go to help directly low-income families. Now, Anna Sarwar says that that's where he thinks the funding for his proposal should come from. Uh, he announced his proposal before we knew about that £41 million. So I'm assuming, and maybe I'm getting it wrong in terms of what exactly his proposal is, that the £70 payment is over and above that. And all I'm saying to him is, well, tell us where you think that money should come. Every penny of the £41 million, assuming it does come from uh, the UK government, because sometimes the consequentials don't turn out to be exactly what they appear, every single penny will go to helping low-income families, and that will be in addition to the other sources of support that I've just outlined, the £130 support payment, all of the other steps were taken, the doubling of the carers' allowance, the, the seven benefits that don't exist anywhere else in the UK that Social Security Scotland is already delivering. We do act to use our powers and our resources, but this cost of living crisis is being caused by UK government decisions uh, that they are taking within their reserved powers. Uh, and we can't go on raiding a finite devolved budget to mitigate the impact of those. We need to get these powers out of the hands of UK governments and into the hands of this Parliament. And as long as Anna Sarwar uh, prefers keeping these powers in the hands of Boris Johnson, he will not have the credibility he wants to have before this chamber. We 
move to supplementary questions, and I call Rachel Hamilton. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Mike Coffey from SRUC said, with the state of the planet, we need to do something rather urgently. We no longer have the luxury of having decades to breed plants and animals. The Roslyn Institute, the NFUS, the SRUC are all concerned that this SNP government are adopting an outdated EU position in rejecting gene editing, instead of grasping science and innovation and putting rural farmers in Scotland on the back foot. Can I ask the First Minister, does she agree with David Mishy of the NFUS that gene editing will benefit animal welfare, public health, the environment and farmers? First Minister. I've not seen those comments in full. I'm happy to look at them and uh, consider them carefully. These are serious issues. Uh, but I, I think the quality uh, of our food and our agriculture is really important. Um, I don't support uh, GM crops, and I think uh, the opposition to that is important. I know we're not talking about exactly the same thing, but I think it's important we consider all of this thing, uh, these things uh, carefully. So I'll consider the comments and uh, be happy to say more when I've had the opportunity to do so. Jim Fairley. Uh, thank you, President Officer. While in Washington last week, Boris Johnson claimed that the US ban on imports of lamb had been lifted. UK government memos obtained by the Daily Record, however, reveal that the ban has not been lifted and that the PM has been, and I'm quoting here, um, from UK civil servants, misleading. Does the First Minister agree that the way the Tories are treating the industry is quite frankly disgraceful and that Boris Johnson must apologise and set the record straight? First Minister. I, I, Jim Fairley appears to be suggesting uh, that not everything that comes out of the mouth of Boris Johnson can be relied upon. I mean, perish, perish the thought. Perhaps uh, the more pertinent question is if uh, anything that comes out of the mouth of Boris Johnson can be entirely uh, relied upon. But Jim Fairley is absolutely right. I, I think uh, the Prime Minister does owe an apology because clearly what he said um, is not the case and, of course, has been described as misleading. But, of course, this is a... UK government that has betrayed uh, our, our farmers, uh, our fishermen, our entire agricultural sector. Um, and each and every day right now, it is paying the price of the Tory Brexit. And that price is getting higher and higher with every day that passes. So perhaps an apology, not just uh, for a misleading statement in terms of uh, the import ban on lamb, but an apology for all of the damage that this UK government has done uh, through Brexit would indeed be appropriate. Daniel Johnson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Today, the furlough scheme comes to an end. The most recent figures showing that over 100,000 people in Scotland were still on furlough. While the headlines may be discussing uh, labour shortages, labour market statistics show that the number of jobs in the economy is still significantly below pre-pandemic levels. While the Transition Training Fund is welcome, it will account for a small fraction of this jobs shortfall. So does the First Minister think her government is doing enough to help those who may be finding themselves out of work at the end of this month, given the stress, anxiety and impact on household finances they will be finding themselves in. First Minister. Uh, we will continue to do everything we can, and I think it is a fair question about uh, the need for us to look on an ongoing basis at whether we are doing all that we reasonably can to help low-income families, to help those who are unemployed, and I certainly give the assurance that we will do that on an ongoing basis. Uh, but, in a sense, my answer comes back to the answer I gave to Anna Sarwar. Uh, we are, I'm afraid, suffering the impact, and people across the country are suffering the impact right now of decisions that are beyond the control of this government and this parliament. 
um, and there will always therefore be a limit to what we can do to mitigate the impact of those decisions. Uh, it would be far better if we didn't have to go cap in hand to a UK government to ask for furlough to be continued. It would be much, much better if we could take these decisions here in this democratically elected parliament in Scotland. So perhaps uh, if Labour are serious about these issues, as I, I respect the fact that the member is, they've got to stop this position of just uh, willing the ends uh, of, of things. They've got to get into a position uh, where they give this parliament the means to do the things yeah. that we all want it to be able to do. Jamie Green. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, just as we've been sitting here listening to the exchange about vaccine passports, I've been contacted by a hospitality venue in the Highlands who says that they host weddings uh, there's one tomorrow night, actually. He understands that all guests will need to provide evidence of two vaccinations to be allowed in. There's music, there's dancing, uh, and all the rest. Some of the guests are family members, and they're over from China. Will they be allowed in? First Minister. Uh, as we have made clear, weddings are exempt uh, from the vaccine certification scheme. Jenny Minto. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what discussions the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government regarding the announcement of a temporary visa scheme to tackle skills shortages. First Minister. Uh, we discuss these matters on an ongoing uh, basis with the UK Government. Um, I have uh, made very clear, this Government has made very clear on many, many occasions our opposition to the immigration uh, policies of the UK Government and uh, in particular the ending of free movement. We welcome anything uh, that enables more people uh, to come here to work. Uh, but the changes to the visa rules that were announced last week, I think to describe them as a, a sticking plaster uh, would uh, be an exaggeration because I don't even think they amount to that woefully inadequate. And I'm afraid uh, the price of these policies is going to be paid uh, and felt by people across the country for some time to come. Monica Lennon. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Abortion rights are under attack around the world, and here in Scotland, women are being harassed when trying to access abortion clinics safely. The implementation of buffer zones around clinics has stalled, and campaigners like Back Off Scotland are looking to the Scottish Government for leadership and support. Does the First Minister agree that anyone accessing abortion health care in Scotland should be able to do so safely and free from harassment? And will the government reassess its position on legislating for abortion clinic buffer zones? First Minister. Uh, yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I am uh, a very strong believer in a woman's uh, right to choose on the issue of abortion. Uh, and if it's possible, I'm an even uh, stronger uh, advocate, uh, as I think everybody should be, regardless of different views on abortion, that any woman uh, having an abortion should be able to do so without uh, any fear uh, or reality uh, of abuse or harassment. I, I do believe uh, there is work to be done to make sure that that uh, is the case. And uh, I, I think uh, my part party's manifesto, uh, as other manifestos did, uh, had things to say on this in the election, and we will be uh, considering uh, steps that we can take to make sure that that uh, is a right that women can exercise in reality. Beatrice Wishart. Reputational damage is being caused to some Shetland businesses as Transport Scotland fails to address the needs of adequate year-round ferry freight capacity. A removals company with forward bookings cancelled resulted in a house owner sitting on the floor in the new empty home. Just one recent example. There can be no economic growth without sufficient infrastructure. But this matter has been raised before and the response is that pinch points are recognised and all options are being considered. 
There's growing frustration and anger in the Isles that no interim solution has been found. So can the First Minister indicate what Transport Scotland does with the freight information that Northern Isles stakeholders provide to it, and when is the Scottish Government going to address this very serious problem? First Minister. Um, I know the Transport Minister has been engaged on these issues. I absolutely agree uh, around the importance of them. Uh, obviously, there is a planned uh, development around uh, two new freight uh, vessels, which will help to address the issue in the longer term. But the Transport Minister has also given an assurance uh, that work is underway to explore potential shorter term actions that will alleviate some pressures on the busiest uh, sailing. So I, I will uh, ask the Transport uh, Minister to write directly to the member if she wants to provide any more details of the particular case that she has cited here. Um, that will be passed on as well, and I will ask uh, Graham Day to provide uh, more details of the work that is underway to resolve this in the shorter term, um, as well as the longer term. Question number three, Gillian Mackay. To ask the First Minister what assessment the Scottish Government has made of the ongoing econo economic impact on Scotland of Brexit. First Minister. Uh, the Scottish Government has estimated that the new EU-UK relationship could cut Scotland's GDP by around 6.1 per cent. That would be equivalent to £9 billion in 2016 cash terms uh, by 2030 compared uh, to continued EU membership. Uh, in particular, we have forecast that one of the immediate impacts would come from challenges in recruiting and retaining EU citizens as workers here, and so indeed that is proving. Uh, the fuel crisis, uh, the labour and skills shortages that are being experienced across the economy, um, and indeed public services right now, uh, I think lay bare the economic recklessness of this hard Brexit. Uh, the UK government pressed ahead with leaving the EU despite repeated requests to delay, uh, and everybody across the country is now seeing the result of this short-sighted ideology everywhere we look today. Julian Mackay. The people of Scotland never voted for Brexit. Now we're faced with soaring energy prices, four courts running dry. There's a labour shortage affecting sectors from care to haulage. We're even threatened with shortages of iron brew if this case is, isn't urgently addressed. The Conservative response to this is a pathetic offer of a three-month visa for EU truck drivers. It's clear that the Tories have nothing to offer Scotland but cuts, hardship and cruelty. And with their latest plans for replacing EU subsidies, they are yet again taking powers from this Parliament and threatening our plans for a green recovery. Is the First Minister concerned about this latest power grab and will she reaffirm her commitment, as outlined in our cooperation agreement, that the people of Scotland will be given a way out of Boris Johnson's Brexit Britain with a referendum on Scotland's future before the end of this Parliament? First Minister. Uh, yes. I thought it was interesting, as Gillian Mackay was asking uh, that very, very pertinent uh, question, that the Tories were getting very, very twitchy, because they don't like hearing, they don't like listening to the reality of the damage their policies are doing to people the length and breadth of Scotland. Uh, but they will not be able to hide from that damage uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, on immigration in particular, having spent uh, the time in the run-up to the Brexit referendum and, and since the Conservatives giving the impression 
impression that people from other countries are not welcome to work here. Uh, they now, of course, uh, want people to come here for three months to help the UK government out of the self-imposed crisis, only to send them back again on Christmas Eve. It is absolutely disgraceful. And I think we've heard across a range of issues today uh, the, the real uh, need uh, and power of the argument uh, for this country to be independent so that we can take these decisions ourselves, so that we are no longer dependent on the decisions of a UK government uh, and we can respond to the needs uh, of people across this country here in the democratically elected parliament of our nation. So yes, I do uh, continue uh, to believe uh, and indeed intend that this will be the case, that people uh, across this country will have the opportunity to choose independence in a referendum within this parliament and I hope within the first half of this parliament. Audrey Nicholl. Thank you, presiding officer. Does the First Minister agree with me that local authority budgets have been badly affected by the disastrous Tory Brexit deal, where councils such as Aberdeenshire are struggling to repair potholes because contractors cite additional costs relating to supplies and staff? I would just like to ask colleagues to please bear in mind that we are all wishing to hear the questions asked. I am hopeful, First Minister, that you heard the question. I, I did hear the question. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, and, and people will draw their own conclusions, Presiding Officer, that the, the Tories don't want people to hear these questions because they hope people will not see the damage that Tory policies are doing to people across this country. But people are feeling it in their jobs, they're feeling it in their pay packets, they're feeling it in their energy bills, uh, and they will see it and they will know exactly who is responsible. In terms of local government budgets, uh, during a decade of Tory austerity, we sought to treat local government as fairly as possible, and we will continue to do that. But whether it's austerity or Brexit, we see the damage the Conservatives are doing, which is why more and more people do think that this country should be independent. Question number four, Evelyn Tweed. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what engagement the Scottish Government has had and plans it has made with key Scottish industries to support vulnerable households this winter. First Minister. Well, I've already, uh, in answer to previous questions, set out the range uh, of measures we are taking to directly support uh, vulnerable households uh, across this winter. Uh, more generally, uh, we are engaging uh, with people and businesses across the country. Uh, we've been engaging with industry and consumer groups, including fuel poverty organisations, uh, to develop plans for what we can reasonably do to further support those in vulnerable circumstances. Uh, the Cabinet Secretary, Michael Matheson, uh, has also met with the UK Secretary of State. Uh, he did so on Monday this week, where he pressed for further UK government action on skills industry and for support for the most vulnerable, uh, and we intend to keep making that case. Evelyn Tweed. Thank you, Presiding Officer. As the First Minister knows, there is just one week to go before the UK Government cuts universal credit, plunging over 60,000 families and 20,000 children in Scotland into poverty. Tory MSPs have spent this week defending the indefensible. And will she join me in saying to the Tories, it's not too late, do the right thing, defend your constituents, and stand with the Scottish Parliament against these cuts. First Minister. Yes, I do. I mean, obviously, as part of the cut and thrust of democracy and, and political debate, I, I disagree um, and oppose many of the UK government's policies, as you know, the Conservatives will oppose many of the policies 
of this government. But I don't think there has been anything quite so morally, morally indefensible as this cut to universal credit that is planned to take effect in a week. Uh, taking, at this time in particular, £20 a week away from the most vulnerable, lowest-income uh, households across the country simply cannot be defended uh, in any way, shape or form. And, and I do say uh, to the Conservatives here, if Douglas Ross wants to uh, get off his phone for a moment while we're talking about this really serious issue, uh, I would say uh, to the Conservatives in this chamber, please, over the next few days, uh, try to persuade your UK government colleagues not to do this, because it is your constituents, just as it is mine and the constituents of every member in this chamber, uh, who are going to find it difficult to feed their children, uh, to pay their energy bills um, and to uh, live uh, with dignity if this cut goes ahead. For goodness sake, let's all of us unite to say to this UK government, do not do this. Question number five, Miles Briggs. Thank, thank you, President Officer. To ask, the Scottish, uh, to ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reports that in the last year ministers overturned almost 50% of planning applications. First Minister. Well, it's simply uh, incorrect uh, to say that uh, ministers have overturned uh, almost 50% of planning applications. Uh, the vast majority of planning appeals are decided by independent reporters from the Planning and Environmental Appeals Division of the Scottish Government. It is right and proper that ministers have no involvement in cases delegated to reporters. In the last financial year, 135 decisions on planning appeals were made uh, and planning permission granted on 67 occasions. Um, however, in the same period, local planning authorities decided approximately 25,000 planning applications, of which 94.5% were granted planning permission. So planning approvals issued by reporters were approximately 0.3% of the planning permissions granted over the course of this year in Scotland. That's my response to that claim, Presiding Officer. Miles Briggs. Officer, we know the National Planning Framework 4 will give Ministers additional powers over local planning. Council leaders, and this is Council leaders including your own First Minister, voiced real concerns about the impact of government proposals of, around centralisation of services and further loss of local accountability and decision making, including plans around the drug and alcohol partnerships and children's services being swept up in proposals set out for a centralised system. Can I ask a very simple question of the First Minister? By the end of this Parliament, Will the councils have fewer or more powers? First Minister. We seem to have gone from planning applications to children's services. Uh, we work in partnership uh, with local authorities to make sure we're delivering for people across the country. But let's go back to uh, planning uh, applications. There's no centralisation uh, here. As I said, 25,000 planning applications uh, decided by local planning authorities. Uh, the vast majority of them, 94.5% granted planning permission. Uh, 135 decisions on planning appeals uh, made uh, through the arrangements I set out within the Scottish Government. And actually, in 2020-2021, Scottish ministers made the final decision on four recalled uh, planning appeals. So the whole premise of this question is deeply, deeply flawed, which is probably why Miles Briggs chose to go into something else uh, after my first answer rather than stick with the subject matter of his question. Ariane Burgess. On the subject of planning uh, and the national planning framework, um, which will be published and consulted on soon, um, the, I would like to ask the First Minister when the Scottish Government intends to publish the national planning framework participation statement setting out the consultation process. First Minister. 
Um, I'm very happy to get back to the member uh, with the, the date, if we have set a date uh, on which that will be uh, published, um, and I'll uh, write to the minister, ask the relevant uh, minister to write to the member as soon as possible. Question number six, Pam Duncan Glancy. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reports that social care services in Glasgow have been temporarily suspended because of staff shortages. First Minister. Well, firstly, can I uh, say that I think all of us understand how vital these services are to uh, many people uh, and understand uh, the concern that any changes to the operation of such services uh, brings. Glasgow Health and Social Care Partnership has uh, sought to assure the government uh, that this suspension of day services is temporary. It will be regularly reviewed and services uh, will be reinstated as quickly as possible. Uh, we have been and will continue to work closely with all local areas, including Glasgow, to ensure that services are delivered safely. Uh, this, of course, has included measures to address recruitment and retention issues, uh, such as working with the Scottish Social Services Council and key partners to promote opportunities and encourage take-up of vacant posts. Uh, this includes work on training and developing the workforce. And In addition, we are running a campaign to attract more people to the sector and accelerating the route into the sector in recruitment processes. Pam Duncan-Clancy. I thank the First Minister for that answer, but people who require care will probably find little comfort in that. Glasgow City Council last week took the operational decision to suspend daycare services on the basis of mounting staff pre staffing pressures in what has been described in, as a critical shortage of care workers, a shortage I as a care user am acutely aware of. Does the First Minister accept that there is a crisis in social care recruitment? that her government's continued year-on-year -year underfunding of local authorities and social care has impacted on the vacancies and the pay available. And can I ask the First Minister how many vacancies there are currently in social care in Scotland, whether the government will commit to publishing this information, what action the Scottish Government is taking to tackle the crisis, including the grossly unfair low pay in the sector? First Minister. Well, I think there are a number of perfectly reasonable questions uh, involved there. Firstly, I, I will undertake to uh, consider whether, uh, obviously, uh, local authorities generally are the employers of social care workers, uh, so this data is likely to be held mainly by local authorities. I will undertake to look at whether we can uh, publish the kind of information that Pam Duncan Glancy is asking for, so that we do have uh, greater understanding and transparency around uh, the level of vacancies. Um, secondly, I absolutely agree uh, that notwithstanding my answer and probably notwithstanding this answer, this will be of profound concern to anybody who is affected by this temporary sus suspension of services and everybody wants to see that uh, uh, reinstated as quickly as possible. Um, we will continue across this chamber to have debates about funding. Uh, we are increasing funding to social care and it's important that we do that. I think there is a recognised need to drive up the pay and conditions of the social care workforce, which is part of our national care service proposals, but needs to be progressed uh, leading up to that as well. So I take all of this very seriously. I don't want to get back into exchanges that we've had earlier on um, about Brexit, but what I would say is we are facing uh, a shortage of labour in this country that is affecting, as we see right now, uh, haulage companies and, and many aspects of the private sector. But we all have to recognise that this is affecting 
our health and care sector too, and is likely uh, to, to exacerbate in the, the coming period. The Scottish Government, in fact, the Health Secretary and I were discussing this yesterday with officials, uh, have a number of uh, plans uh, in progress to try to increase recruitment into social care, um, and we will uh, do everything we can. Uh, but this is one of the, the impacts of decisions that have been taken over recent years that is going to be very difficult for us uh, in the coming months, uh, and I think we all have to recognise that and resolve to do everything we can to overcome it. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions. We will now point of order, Brian Whittle. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Um, yesterday in this chamber, during the debate on the drug death crisis, SNP MSP Jim Fairley suggested that the Scottish Conservatives were, and I quote, cynically using the death toll that drugs are taking in our communities to attack the Scottish Government. That kind of language, presenting officer, I would suggest, goes beyond the robust debate we want in this chamber. And to those of us who have stood up over the past few years from across the floor and from all parties, represented our communities and debated this issue with a view to finding solutions, this is offensive. If Mr Fairley is suggesting that opposition parties should not use their debating time to highlight a crisis that sees Scotland as the drug death capital of Europe, and the First Minister concede that the Scottish Government have taken their eye off the ball, then I'm not sure what we are supposed to use our time for. It is because of the drug death rate that we continually raise this matter, and I know that members from across all political parties recognise this and work constructively to help tackle this shame. Now, I do recognise that Mr Fairley is one of the newer members of this place, and I would like to put on record he is someone I do have respect for and work with in committee, and perhaps he would use this time to reflect on the use of inflammatory language. But that brings me uh, to someone who should know better. The SNP Chief Whip stated that Conservatives are playing political games while people's lives are at stake, and that apparently it was a damn disgrace. Now, he may be relishing his time in the spotlight, but since the start of this pandemic some 18 months ago, the Scottish Government has consistently reassured this chamber that it would bring important decisions to the Parliament for approval and scrutiny. To ask the Scottish Government to adhere to their own commitments should not result in a chief whip of this Government suggesting that we are putting lives at stake. It is because people's lives are at stake that we continue to press for this information. Presiding officer. Presiding officer, you know I am an advocate of robust, even heated debate in this chamber. But I have to say that the language that is creeping into debate is deteriorating. It took the First Minister herself has suggested we need to consider our behaviour and language in here. Presiding officer, suggesting that anyone is using the death of others or that we are putting lives at risk for questioning the Scottish Government, I would say is unparliamentary and is going too far. I seek your opinion on whether or not parliamentary protocol has been breached. I thank Mr Whittle for his point of order. He is entirely correct that while debates in this chamber can be robust, they must also be conducted in terms that demonstrate courtesy and respect for other members. The Deputy Presiding Officers and I will always intervene where we feel that language has been used that is not acceptable. MSPs have a leadership role in their communities and across Scotland, the way in which we conduct debate in this Parliament should set a positive example to people across the country. And I would ask all members to reflect on this in relation to their conduct in the Chamber. 
Point of order, Rona Mackay. Thank you. Um, the, uh, Brian Whittle has several times referred to the Minister for Parliamentary Business as the Chief Whip, which is incorrect. Thank you, Ms Mackay. Your comments are on the record. We now move to the next item of business, which is members' business. Please leave the chamber quietly. Thank you.